0: Let's pray. God, we thank you for how you've opened our eyes to really believe the truths that we just sang. God, I pray that you would help us through your word this morning to see more of the brightness of the glory of Christ. God, would you use your word to cause the woeful heart to sing because they see that Jesus shines fairer and purer than all the angels that heaven can boast. God, I pray that you would give us grace to incline our ear to you, to listen diligently to you now, to hear that our souls may live. God, I pray that you would give us grace to forsake wickedness more Would you give the unrighteous man grace to forsake his thoughts and return to you that you may have compassion on him. God, I pray that you would cause all of us to increase in our confidence that you abundantly pardon. God, now I pray that you would cause your word that comes from your mouth To accomplish that which you purpose, I pray you would cause your word to succeed now in the thing for which you send it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2? It's at the end of the book. And our text this morning is the last section of the chapter, Revelation 2, verses 18 through 29. And these are the words of Christ to the first century church in Thyatira. And this morning I'd like to especially focus on what these words to Thyatira show about who Jesus is. And in truth, all seven of the letters to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3 serve this purpose. All the letters begin with a statement about some aspect of Christ's glory. And really, the whole book of Revelation has this as a main purpose. The first five words of the book make that plain. It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. In our text this morning, the letter to Thyatira mentions this purpose specifically. If you consider verse 23, in the second half of the verse, we read Jesus saying... All the churches will know that I am He who searches mind and heart. And so Jesus is going to speak to the church in Thyatira. Jesus is going to act toward this church in Thyatira in such a manner that all churches would know who He is. And in these words of Revelation 2, 18-29, there are many glorious truths on display for all the churches to know about Jesus. I love what one commentator on the book of Revelation uh, says in his introductory comments to this letter to Thyatira. He says, In the letters that we have looked at in Revelation 2 and 3, Ephesus had abandoned their first love. Smyrna was not reproved, but they were facing tribulation. Pergamum had people holding the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Thyatira, our letter this morning, is tolerating Jezebel. We will see that Sardis seemed alive but was dead. Pergamum had an open door. Laodicea was lukewarm. The church does not look great in these letters, but Jesus is magnificent. This letter to Thyatira displays the magnificent glory of Jesus. Jesus. Let's look at that together now. Christ introduces himself to the church in Thyatira in verse 18 with imagery that demonstrates his judging omniscience. And that's our first point, the judging omniscience of Jesus. Look at verse 18 with me. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. The eyes of the Son of God are like a flame of fire. His searching gaze is perfectly pure and holy and testing. And the eyes of the Son of God are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Nothing is hidden from His sight. The imagery of fire indicates purity And holiness, which also implies the judgment that he will bring upon all those whom he sees are not pure and holy. And this imagery illustrates the truth Jesus states about himself later in the letter. We've already read it once. Verse 23. I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. Jesus wants the church is to know this about him. He is the one who knows all and judges all. And Christ, uh, with this imagery, makes use of Jeremiah 17,9 and 10 here, or, or with the, the truth about himself in verse 23, rather, is making use of Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10, which reads, "The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So Jesus sees what a man cannot see. He sees the heart of a man. He knows a man's true colors. He knows a man better than a man knows himself. So you may deceive others about who you really are on the inside. You may even deceive yourself, but you will not deceive the Son of God, whose eyes are like a flame of fire. In the letters to the churches that we've looked at already in Revelation 2, we find examples of Jesus' flaming, judging gaze penetrating through various pretenses. The church in Ephesus, in verse 2, was dealing with people who said they were apostles, but they were not. And Jesus sees right through them. In verse 9, the church in Smyrna was dealing with people who said that they were Jews and they were not. Jesus sees right through them. And he says instead that they are more appropriately identified as a synagogue of Satan. Today, we'll find the church in Thyatira is dealing with one who says she is a prophet, but is not. Again, Jesus sees and says what is actually true of this person. She's not a prophet. Rather, her teachings are more properly called, verse 24, the deep things of Satan. And perhaps Jesus offers this judgment because she was calling her teachings the deep things of God. But Jesus sees right through that. It doesn't matter what you call yourself or convince others you are. The Son of God is Sees, and the flame of his judgment will bring to light even the thoughts of a man's mind and the desires of a man's heart. The image of having feet like burnished bronze also communicates his purity. Even the feet of the Son of God are like burnished bronze, like fine metal. It has had every speck of imperfection and impurity burned out of it. And just like his fiery eyes communicate purity and judgment, so also does this picture of his feet. Later in the book of Revelation, we're told Christ will come to trample his enemies underfoot. Revelation nineteen fifteen. Jesus will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And Scripture promises, doesn't it, that every foe of Christ will be made his footstool. So if Christ's flaming eyes teaches us that he makes perfect judgments, his bronze feet teach us that he will execute perfect judgment. Is there any sin that you are hiding? If so, you are very uncomfortable right now. You're trying not to fidget so your neighbor doesn't suspect that I'm talking about you. You should repent because Christ sees the hearts and minds of men. The judging omniscience of Jesus is not only expressed by His seeing sin and trampling sinners underfoot. Jesus also sees, praise God, the good works of His people which they strive after by the power of His Spirit. And so in verse 19, the Lord who searches hearts and minds commends the church in Thyatira for several things because He sees and He knows. So if you look at verse 19, Jesus says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. So Your last works are greater than your first works. This is a beautiful commendation for a church to receive from Jesus. Right? You're not becoming lukewarm and fizzling out. You are growing in good works. You're increasing in love and faith and service. So in a couple of important ways, this church in Thyatira is a direct contrast to the church of Ephesus, the first church addressed in chapter 2. Here in verse 19, we see Thyatira is doing well in an area that Ephesus was not. Perhaps you remember, Ephesus also is commended by Jesus for their works and their patient endurance, but they had left the love they had at first. By contrast, this church... The very first work that Jesus commends is their love. He says, I know your works. And the first work he highlights, I know your love. And the church excelled beyond Ephesus in their progress as well. Ephesus had regressed in love. Jesus told them, you have left the love you had at first. Thyatira, on the other hand, has works that exceed those they had at first. They're not regressing in any sense that we're told of. They're making spiritual progress. They're not just standing pat and trying to avoid apostasy. They are growing in grace and ministry. Now, I know many of you, I believe I have seen evidence of your love and faith and service and patient endurance, but I especially want to challenge you this morning To consider if Jesus could say this last word of commendation to you personally. I know that your latter works exceed your first. Is your love increasing? Is your faith increasing? Is your ministry increasing? Is your Christian patience increasing? Is your endurance increasing? Do your last works exceed your first works? Those of your previous Christian life. There's a stereotype about Christianity. When someone first becomes a Christian, they excel in the work of the Lord. And then that wears off and, and they don't really live that way the rest of their life. And that's actually not normal Christianity. What's normal Christianity is to grow. In verse 20, Jesus transitions from his word of commendation in order to bring a word of correction. And here we see a second aspect of Jesus' glory, the holy intolerance of Jesus, the holy intolerance of Jesus. Would you look at verse 20 with me, please? Jesus says, I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Jesus is holy. And so when the church is tolerating one like Jezebel, Jesus has this against them. Uh, this is clearly a false teacher in the church. And she calls herself a prophet, so she claims to speak for God. Verse twenty. It says to, uh, explicitly she's teaching the servants of Jesus to sin in a couple of really appalling ways. The other action in verse 20 of this one, it's translated seducing in the ESV. that could also be translated just to lead astray or deceive. It, I think it's another action referring just to false teaching. So there is someone in this church who is telling church members that it's okay to sin. Uh, Teaching Christians can compromise with the world around them in matters of sexual immorality and practices of idolatry. And perhaps you remember from the last sermon uh, in this series that um, in these ancient Greco-Roman cities, there were trade guilds, and there were a lot that we know of that were in ancient Thyatira. And these trade guilds uh, were like labor unions for various type of industry. And it could be difficult to make a living if you didn't participate in one of them. Uh, Refusing to participate could lead to economic ostracism or even persecution. Now, this was a major problem for Christians because each trade guild had idols. They had patron deities that they would get together at their meetings and seek blessings from. And when they gathered to eat food that was part of a sacrifice of worship to an idol, uh, often these gatherings included various kinds of sexual... Immorality. So perhaps this false teaching in Thyatira was giving people uh, the theological excuses that they needed to continue participating in these groups. So that they wouldn't lose their livelihood, or they wouldn't lose their friends, or they wouldn't lose their sin. And this basic error of this false teaching threatens the church in really virtually every age and place teaching people that they don't have to repent of sin. You very likely have been exposed to some form of this error yourself in your life. And Jesus does not want us to be tolerant of it. Now, Jezebel is almost certainly not the name of the actual person causing trouble in this church. Rather, Jesus is giving someone this name to associate them with a notorious queen of Israel from the Old Testament. In 1 Kings, we read about an ancient king of Israel named Ahab who took a daughter of pagan royalty named Jezebel as his wife, and King Ahab became the worst king in Israel's history up to that point. And that is saying something. And Jezebel played a significant role in Ahab's excelling in evil. 1 Kings 21-25 says, there was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. Jezebel made herself an arch enemy of God and of God's servants. Perhaps you remember her showdown with the prophets and the prophet Elijah. And she did much to harm the people of God. And in part, that was by promoting idolatry and sexual immorality among them just like this false teacher in Thyatira is doing. So this is certainly not a flattering comparison for Jesus to make, but the shoe fits. A self-professed prophetess is having the same corrupting influence that old Queen Jezebel had on the people of God. And again, the Greco-Roman culture around this church was full of all kinds of idolatry, and immorality. And the trade guilds, yes, but not just there. All of society. And this was so much the case that when the Gentiles first started becoming Christians, the apostles wrote to them and said in Acts 15, 28, in Acts 15, 28, to these new Gentile Christians, it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden then these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from sexual immorality. And so we shouldn't be surprised, should we, that these issues keep coming up in the churches that are addressed in the New Testament? We've seen it in these letters in Revelation 2 to the church in Pergamum. Some are holding the teaching of Balaam so that they eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Likewise, the teaching of the Nicolaitans are there. This same kind of sin spawning false teaching was a threat to the church in Ephesus that we've already talked about at the beginning of chapter 2. But Jesus said the Ephesian church was withstanding that threat well. I think there's an important lesson for us to see here. The Ephesian church, Jesus commends them by saying, This you have, you hate as opposed to are tolerant of. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So Thyatira is excelling where Ephesus is lacking, but on the other hand, the thing that Ephesus was doing well, Thyatira needed correcting. The church in Ephesus had not love, but it was appropriately intolerant of sin and false teaching. The church in Thyatira is commended for its love, but she is overly tolerant of sin and error. And and we can see examples of these opposite ditches of Ephesus and Thyatira a lot today. A church that really seeks to excel in love may not be appropriately intolerant of unrepentant sin and false teaching, but churches that are appropriately intolerant of sin and error may not be careful to excel in love. But we must be careful to see what Jesus is teaching here, that it is not loving to tolerate things that Jesus hates in the church. If we tolerate unrepentant sin in our midst, if we tolerate false teaching that promotes sin among us, even if we say that this toleration is in the name of love, then Jesus is against us in this matter. We oppose His desires for His church. Notice in verse 20, that Christ is not correcting Jezebel here or those who have been led astray by her. Christ is correcting the church for tolerating her. What does that mean practically? What What does Christ want? Christ is calling on the church to call her out and to stop her influence. And if she is a member or a part of the church, to exercise church discipline, to remove her from membership and from fellowship, and to warn all the believers about her influence. Now, this situation is somewhat familiar, similar to what we read in 1 Corinthians 5, where another church is being inappropriate, inappropriately tolerant toward the sexually immoral. They were even boasting about how tolerant they were. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 and 2. Instead of practicing discipline in Christ's church and removing the unrepentant. Now, I know that this idea of the holy intolerance of Jesus may sound harsh to you. But did you notice the reason that Jesus gave For opposing this kind of tolerance. He said. I have this against you. Because she is leading astray. My servants. Christ loves his church. And so he is intolerant. Of what will harm the people. That he loves. And so are you. Aren't you? Christ is devoted. To the church's welfare. And it is because. Of his great love for his people. That he calls on churches not to tolerate unrepentant sin and false teaching. Another facet of Christ's glory that shines in this letter is his merciful patience. I see it in verses 21 and 22. The merciful patience of Jesus. Look with me at 21. I gave her time to repent but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. Now some of you may be thinking, I think Keith messed up on his outline here. Labeling this point merciful patience. This sounds a lot more like the jig is up, judgment. Well, did you pay close attention to how the verses began? Jesus says, I gave her time to repent. Jesus displays a disposition of graciousness even toward Jezebel. I gave her time. And this time is clearly explained as an extended opportunity to repent, to turn away from sin and false teaching The well of God's mercy must be deep. Think about this. Jesus sees that Jezebel is teaching and seducing his servants to practice sexual immorality and worship idols. And even so, he gives her time to repent. Now, this should encourage you. Jesus is merciful in his disposition even towards someone who can legitimately be compared to Jezebel. He patiently withholded judgment from her. Do you know what the implication of this is? The implication is that if Jezebel would have repented, Jesus would have canceled the judgment she deserved for her sin altogether. Jesus giving her time to repent indicates his willingness to give her, even her, a pardon instead of judgment for all of her sins. Even though her sin is so egregious that Jesus finds fault not only with people who join her in what she's doing, but Jesus finds fault with people who are even tolerating what she's doing. And Jesus extends a patient mercy to give sinners time to repent. And this shows Jesus' desire to give permanent mercy to sinners who do repent. If someone was misleading and seducing people I love, in my most merciful moments, I do not think I could muster up such patience. The mercy and patience of Jesus is astounding. And his merciful patience is on display toward Jezebel's followers as well. Did you see that in verse 22? Look at verse 22 again. Behold, I will throw her, Jezebel, onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless, unless they repent of her works. Unless they turn from these things. You know, every threat of judgment toward man in Scripture is an invitation to, to mercy, because our God is great with mercy. How is this so? How could a God be so unflinchingly intolerant of sin and so patient towards sinners? Jesus is magnificent. And we're called to reflect the glory of Jesus in these ways, too. Even as we seek to be appropriately intolerant of unrepentant sin and false teaching, we should at the same time be merciful and patient and give time and opportunity for repentance and hope and work and pray and wait for that. Now, I want you to notice also in the second half of verse 21 the reason Jesus gives for this judgment coming upon Jezebel. It's not merely the egregious sins she's committed, but the fact that she refuses to repent of them. And that phrase could be translated more simply and more literally as, she does not want to repent of her sexual immorality. Jesus gave time to repent, and she just doesn't want to. This simple little phrase illustrates perfectly the total depravity of man. And what we mean when we speak of man's spiritual inability. God calls all men everywhere to repent. God really offers mercy to all. But like Jezebel, sinners do not want to repent. They like it. Their hearts are not inclined to turn away from sin. Some of you. I don't know this for sure, but I'm confident of this. Some of you right now, are refusing to put your faith in Christ and become a Christian because you know that Jesus intends to take away the sin of his people, and that's not something you want to part with. If anyone will be saved, if anyone will be saved, the case of Jezebel shows us that we need more than just time to repent. We need God to give us a heart that wants to repent of sin. And this is why repentance is described as a gift of God's free grace in the scriptures. It's a work of God's power upon man's heart. And we should pray for that gift and we should thank God wherever we see repentance. When we read in verse 21, she does not want to repent we find a helpful little diagnostic test in helping us think about who really does belong to Jesus. Jesus uh, Jezebel calls herself a Christian. More than that, she calls herself a prophet, but, but she outs herself because she doesn't want to repent. The distinguishing mark of a Christian is not sinless perfection, it's just repentance. Christians want to repent. And a characteristic mark of unbelievers is that they do not want to repent of sin. You know, I can't help but wonder if the church in Thyatira should feel a little bit indicted by this statement about Jezebel, that she doesn't want to repent. Uh, Could it be that Jezebel's unwillingness to repent is reinforced by the church's toleration of her sin and heresy? If we move on from verse 22, actually, we shouldn't move on from verse 22. We cannot move on from verse 22 until we point out what's obvious, uh, that it isn't only the merciful patience of Jesus on display here. We all shall see his punishing justice. If you look one more time at verse 22, the punishing justice of Jesus. He says, behold, I will throw her, or you could say, I am throwing her, Onto a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent. So the time Jesus gave to repent has expired, and Jezebel gets her wish. She doesn't want to repent, and so Jesus doesn't make her. She does not choose the mercy that would come with it. And so Jesus does what is right. And gives the judgment to her she is chosen. And likewise, Jesus indicates judgment on her followers is imminent. For those who commit adultery with her, the verse says. Now adultery, many times in the Bible, is used um, to speak metaphorically of idolatry in the midst of God's people. I think this likely is speaking broadly of all those who have followed after Jezebel by participating in an idolatry somehow. And Christ says he's throwing them into great tribulation. Yet even now, even right up to this tipping point of punishing justice, Jesus says that these followers of Jezebel could still repent of her works. Verse 23 continues this warning of judgment, if you look there. And I will strike her children dead now. We need to stop there for a moment, right? Because you won't be able to pay attention to anything else I say until we talk about that. Um, This most likely refers to Jezebel's spiritual children, I would say, and not her biological children, just like Paul calls those who follow him his children, and Jesus' followers are, in the New Testament, called his children. So I think it makes the most sense to see this as referring to those who have bought into Jezebel's influence, To those who have her same spiritual DNA, who are cut from the same cloth, uh, who are living like they are made of the same spiritual stuff, unrepentance. But even with that understanding, to hear Jesus say, I will strike her children dead, still arrests our attention, doesn't it? It makes us perk up and listen. It makes us sit up and raise our eyebrows. And it should. That's part of the point. Jesus intends for this to grab our attention, and I know that because that's the reason that he gives for saying this. He says, verse 23, I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. So this punishing justice upon Jezebel and her band of unrepentant children is meant by Jesus in part to help all the churches know Him. To sit up and pay attention and look at His glory. Jesus wants us to look at how He deals with Jezebel, to know what He says, that He is God who sees into the hearts and minds of men. And when we do that, we see that His punishing justice is based on His perfect omniscience, because He sees and knows, never is anyone ever falsely condemned with our Lord. He perfectly sees and knows the actions and words and thoughts and desires of all men, and so His punishing justice is, in fact, justice, never injustice. No one ever gets a raw deal from the Lord as the second part of verse 23 indicated. Jesus says, I will give to each of you according to your works. So his punishing justice is always given in accordance with men's works. Never in an undeserved way. Never out of proportion. So throwing Jezebel onto a sickbed is perfectly in accordance with her works. Throwing her followers into tribulation is perfectly in accordance with their works. Striking her so called children dead is perfectly in accordance with their works. And Jesus underlines the justice of this by saying, I will give to each one of you according to your works. You know, all of us deserve Christ's punishing justice. This is not good news for sinners like you and like me that God gives to each according to their works. But there is good news for sinners. Because of God's mercy, Jesus came and was born in a manger in a nature like yours and died on a cross. And when he did, he took the punishing justice that you deserve for your sins. So that everyone who turns to him And trust in his work alone is their only hope for being right with God, can be completely forgiven, have all of the punishing justice that they deserve turned aside. I mean, all of it, there's not a single drop that those who trust in Christ will ever experience because Jesus took all of our sin as our substitute on the cross and then he rose again To show that he triumphed over sin and death and hell and judgment for all of his people. You should repent of all your sin. And trust in Jesus and his work on the cross. You know, in one of the great warnings of all of scripture, Romans 2, 4 through 6, the same language is used that we find in Revelation 2, and the merciful patience of God is put right beside the punishing justice of God, just like we see in this letter. Romans 2, 4 says, Do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent, not repenting heart, You are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of God's wrath. When his righteous judgment will be revealed, he will render to each one according to his works. Please, don't play games with God's patience. Don't presume upon the fact God gives you time to repent. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near it grieves me to think some of you who hear me say this will not repent. Why? Because you are like Jezebel and you just don't want to. Will you repent of that? Will you repent of your unwillingness to repent toward God? Will you cry out to God for mercy for that? Will you trust in Christ's work even for that? I know that God will not despise you for coming to him with that sliver of humility and penitence. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. In verses 24 and 25, another ray of the glory of God shines forth in these words. We see here, as he speaks to Thyatira, his gentle shepherding. The gentle shepherding of Jesus, look at verse 24. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. I love that. Uh, The first three quarters of this verse is just Jesus describing which group in the church he is addressing next. And there is a long introduction prefacing a short message to the rest of you who don't hold her teaching. I lay on you no other burden. I'm not placing upon you any, anything else. You know, the church of Thyatira is experiencing extreme difficulty from outside the church and from inside the church as well. And Jesus here is gently leading them. I think there's a tender little tie-in here with the word of judgment that Jesus spoke against Jezebel. The word lay or place in verse 24 is actually the same uh, Greek word from the beginning of verse 22. It's probably translated throw or, or cast. So Jesus says, I'm throwing Jezebel who won't repent onto a sick bed. I'm throwing her followers, unless they repent, into great tribulation, but the rest of you I don't throw anything else on your shoulders. Uh, This gentle shepherding, once again, reminds us of the way the Holy Spirit instructed the first Gentile Christians. Do you remember Acts 15 we read earlier? They said, It has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. Abstain from idols, from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. It's as if Jesus tells them, you're doing well in, in keeping from these things. You need to stop tolerating those who do not keep from these things. But, but then you yourselves just need to persevere in what you already know and have. Keep walking in repentance and, and faith in Christ's work. And Jesus continues along these lines in verse 25. Look there. Only hold fast to what you have until I come only hold fast. Again, Jesus is not a hard taskmaster. To those who are avoiding what some call the deep things of Satan, He says, I lay on you no other burden, just hold fast until I come. Just hang on until Christ returns. Hang in there until the second coming. It will not be long. He said He's coming soon. He said your life is short. Just keep holding fast. You know, following Jesus is not burdensome. His yoke is easy. His his burden is light. We find rest for our souls. And to strive to continue to turn from sin and live for Him, this doesn't increase our burden. In the beginning of the next verse, in verse 26... Christ restates the same basic exhortation when he speaks of the one who conquers and keeps Christ's work until the end. This one who overcomes or or conquers is simply the one in the church who hears Christ's words and has faith in him, who responds to Christ's words, believing them in repentance and in faith, and, and thereby they're holding fast to what they have in Christ. Uh, Notice also the emphasis on perseverance in Christ's call. Verse 25, hold fast what you have until Christ comes. Verse 26, overcome and keep Christ's work until the end. So we're to persevere in repenting of sin and trusting in Christ. and, And we inherit the good promises of salvation and of this letter only if we do persevere. Verse 26 says, if. Or to the one who overcomes, and only to that one, it is in persevering we show we truly are Christians. Now, the call to persevere till the end and keep Christ's work until he comes could sound quite burdensome to some, right? Like if I told you to lift your hands straight up in the air, and I said, okay, now hold them right there until the end of the sermon. I go, that's a burden until the end. keep, Keep holding up. Keep holding them up. Keep holding them up. That's a burden because you don't want to do that. But persevering in repentance and faith should only actually be burdensome to you if you have a heart like Jezebel, if you don't want to repent. All those who are born again, by definition, want to repent. And so the call to keep Christ's work to the end is the great desire of our hearts. When we hear Christ saying, keep going, hold fast to what To what you have. That should sound to you like the words of a gentle shepherd. And you say, yes, thank you, I want that. I'm going to keep following you. That shouldn't sound to your ears like, oh, I've got to keep doing this. If your eyes are open to see the glory of who Christ is, you will want to hold fast to him until he comes. If you see the glory of who he is, like he is in, on display in this letter. And I hope you see more of the glory of Christ in these promises and warnings and instructions. You know, does it amaze you to consider these stern-sounding words of judgment and these tender-sounding words of care coming from the same mouth? Again, how can we fathom the fullness of this glory? How can God be so holy and so merciful? So retributive and so gentle? So punishing and so shepherdly? So intolerant and so patient? And we should add, it's not the case that He's holy in one moment and then patient in another. Neither is there one side of God and another. He is always unchangingly holy. All that He is, perfect in holy intolerance, and perfect in patient mercy, and perfect in punishing justice, and perfect in gentle shepherding, always, through and through. We cannot fathom all of this. You you cannot fathom the fullness of even one of these perfections, much less the full panorama of His perfections on display in Scripture, or even in just this little part of Scripture. And we're only scratching the surface of the display of God's glory that shines in the face of Christ as He's revealed in Scripture. And there's still one more perfection we have to consider in this last portion of the letter. So look now to the concluding verses. And here we see the astonishing generosity of Jesus. The astonishing generosity of Jesus. Look at verse 26. To the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end... To Him I will give authority over the nations, and He will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. The Son has received authority from His Father to rule over the nations, as with a rod of iron breaking Clay pots. And this very clearly recalls the promises of Psalm 2 and the prophecies of Psalm 2. In Psalm 2, the Lord says, verse 6, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And then in the next verse of Psalm 2, verse 7, God tells us this appointed king of his is one that he calls his son. Verse 7, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And so Jesus speaks of the authority he has received from his Father. Actually, when Jesus introduced himself to this church in verse 18, he begins by calling himself the Son of God. And that may not seem exceptional to you at first glance, but actually that's the only time in the entire book of, the revela- of Revelation that this title, the Son of God, is used to speak of Jesus. Jesus uses this title to Thyatira in part to signal what he will make explicit in verses 26 and 27, that he is the king God promised, coming from the line of David, who will rule forever, whom God calls my son. And when we continue in Psalm 2, we find verses 8 and 9 are the source of these great promises that Christ made to the church in Thyatira. God says about his son, ask of me, I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Listen to this, you shall break them or rule them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So very clearly Jesus says, doesn't he? That's me. I am this king. I am this son. I have received this authority over all nations that the father promised. But the really astounding thing in these verses, the astonishing thing about these verses is not that Jesus tells the church that these promises of Psalm 2 are given by His Father to Him. Jesus says here that the promises of Psalm 2 are given also by Him to the church. To Christians. Isn't that what it said? Verse 26 The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him, to this Christian who continues in faith, to him I, Jesus, will give authority over the nations. And he, the overcoming Christian, will rule the nations with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces even as I myself have received authority from my Father. This is astonishing generosity. When Jesus comes to establish his kingdom on earth, he will give to Christians a share in his rule, in his reign, in his authority that he received from his Father as God's Son and God's King, as God's Christ, descended from David. You know, wouldn't it be astonishingly generous enough of Jesus to say, when I come, I will not smash you like a clay pot, like I will the other nations. But more than that, he says, when I come to exercise authority over the nations, I want you to rule with me. And the book of Revelation repeatedly affirms this same happy ending of Christians ruling with Christ. Revelation 5.10, those ransomed by the blood of Christ they shall reign on the earth. Revelation 20, verse 4, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Revelation 20, verse 6, they will reign with Him for a thousand years. Revelation 22, verse 5, they will reign forever and ever. Now, I don't know exactly what this will be like, but I do know that this is an astonishingly generous thing. For Jesus to do for his people. I I cannot come up with words. To describe how lavish and gracious of a gift this is. And it not feel like a massive understatement. And perhaps that's part of the benefit of the imagery of the next verse. Look at verse 28. And I will give him. Jesus will give the overcoming Christian. The morning star. Wow. Uh, I had a friend in, in high school who uh, paid like 40 bucks or something and gave his girlfriend a little piece of paper that said, one of these stars up there I paid to name after you. It's it's name for you. This is way cooler than that. <laughs> no offense to my friend. if He's listening. I mean, you don't even have to understand what this means to say, wow, how generous. When you do begin to understand what it means, you want to say it all the more. In the very last section of the book of Revelation, Jesus says, I am the bright morning star. Revelation twenty two sixteen. 16. So when Jesus promises to give his people the morning star, he's essentially promising, I will give you myself, which is a more glorious gift than anything else in the universe more glorious than any bright shining star, more glorious than even the sun itself. When John saw Christ, a vision of Him risen in glory, in Revelation chapter 1, it said in verse 16 that His face was like the sun, shining in full strength. Christ being the bright morning star signifies something more specific though. I believe, than just his unmatched glory and splendor. So if you look at the immediate context, or really just read the rest of the verse, where Jesus says in Revelation 22, 16, that I am the bright morning star, you'll see that he uses that title in tandem with his affirmation that he's the promised king in the line of David, the Christ of Psalm 2, the Messiah. Revelation 22:16, Jesus says, I am the root and the descendant of David, God's promised king, the bright and morning star. Okay, how does Jesus, being the morning star, connect to his being the promised king from the line of David? Well, God spoke of his plan to send and crown Jesus as king long before the Christ was prophesied by David in Psalm 2, long before the Christ was promised to David in 2 Samuel 7. In fact, those promises and prophecies were themselves picking up on and building upon previous promises and prophecies. And in one of those ancient oracles, a king for God's people is foreseen and is described as a star. And God spoke this oracle through the mouth of Balaam, of all people. The same Balaam, not coincidentally, I think, that was referenced by Jesus in the previous letter in Revelation 2, speaking of Pergamum. So in numbers 24:17 numbers 24:17 the lord speaks and says i see him but not now i behold him but not near a star shall come out of jacob and a scepter shall rise out of israel now listen to what's next and you hear the same kind of language about this star that's used in psalm 2 It will crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion. So it's perfectly natural, isn't it, for Christ to promise this church in Thyatira, the morning star, right after he promises them a share in his rule and reign as God's king, as the one who exercises authority over all the nations. And so the promise of the morning star... And you should listen to this, because this promise is for you, too, if you are a Christian. The promise of the morning star does refer to Christ offering himself to his people. But more specifically, Christ is offering to give himself to his people as the king over all. It was promised. When Jesus gives himself to his people He shares with them all that is His. And so He shares with us the scepter He receives from His Father, who becomes our Father too. And I just have to close by reminding you that this soaring promise of reigning with Christ is offered even to those in the church of Thyatira who were, when they heard this promise, who were engaging in sexual immorality and idolatry with Jezebel. If they would just repent of those things in response to these words, even they would be given this generous gift of grace. But the promise is not for them only. As I said, it's for you too if you hold fast to Christ, if you are holding fast to Christ. And that's exactly the note on which Jesus ends the letter. If you look at verse 29. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. God, thank you for speaking to us. Speaking to us this morning. For speaking to us through your word in a living and active way. God, I pray you would give us faith to be warned by these warnings and give us faith to be motivated by these promises and give us insight into how we could live more for the glory of Christ and how we could live in such a way that we could see more clearly in our own hearts and minds the glory of Christ. Lord, we want we want what Jesus to see when he searches our minds and our hearts. We want him to find there a love for him. We want him to find an astonishment at his beauty and glory. Would you work that in us to the praise of the glory of your grace? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.